0: Um, Particularly in the last chapter, chapter 17, Jesus has prayed for his disciples and all those who would follow him, thanking God that his death would save them and praying that God would be glorified by what would soon take place. So now, into chapter 18, Jesus begins his journey to the cross. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people.
1: Loving Father, we praise you that in this amazing story we read that you are God, the awesome one who created all things. And yet we also learn that you can be known I pray that you would help us understand all that this passage means for us today. You would encourage us with its truths and uh, you would help us to see Jesus Christ as he really is. Amen. If you uh, grew up in the 60s, you'll know this man, Cassius Clay, otherwise known as Muhammad Ali, uh, who famously said in 1964, I am the greatest. Uh, Apparently he also said in another interview, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I also choose the round. Uh, if you're a bit younger, you'll know this guy. William Adams, otherwise known as Will I. Am. He spells his name Will.i.am. Hey, he's a bit of a maverick, he's a sort of um, entrepreneur, um, a music producer, a musician. Very, very creative, very wealthy, very generous man. Um, he doesn't explain, you might know him from the band The Black Eyed Peas. You might know him from The Voice. He doesn't explain anywhere why he chooses to call himself Will I Am. It's probably part of his whole brand and people, the intrigue about him. He doesn't explain himself. But if you look at his website, it's very interesting that he does have a very high opinion of himself. Will I Am. So, Muhammad Ali, Will I Am. Well, we've been looking, haven't we, in recent weeks at. Uh, The seven I am statements in John, and Neil and I have been unpacking every week. They're great statements that Jesus makes about himself. You can read them there, and maybe you can remember what he meant by each of those statements. But really, those statements are statements where he claims to be utterly peerless. Where Jesus Christ claims to be God. And before we journey to the cross, the next four weeks building up to Easter, we're looking at more passages in John's gospel that help prepare our hearts for Easter. But before we jump into that journey with all its excitement and intrigue and distress and despair and then joy on Easter Sunday, I just want us this morning to slow down and get right to the heart of what Jesus meant when seven times in this gospel he says, I am dot, dot, dot. just have a look at the reading that we had from John chapter 18 i'm just going to read the first 5 verses when he had finished praying so that's jesus and it's interesting isn't it before his big journey to the cross what is he doing he's praying when he had finished praying jesus left with his disciples and crossed the kidron valley that's a big valley to the east of jerusalem on the other side was a garden Uh, Probably the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jerusalem was quite small and people didn't own many private gardens. So, a lot of wealthy people had gardens the other side of the valley, up a hill, kind of like uh, an allotment or a garden which they could care for. And maybe Jesus and his disciples knew someone, so they headed for the place they often went to pray. They're up on the garden Garden of Gethsemane. And his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're their religious leaders. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. And he went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. At one level, Jesus is just responding to them. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes, well, I'm he. You're looking for me. Here I am. But actually, there's far more going on when Jesus says, I am he. He's not just introducing himself. How do we know that? Have a look at verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why do they do that? Just hold that thought. Now, I've uh, been doing a bit of research for a bit of fun this week at funny names that people have. Um, apparently, there's a 76-year-old, recently retired man in Chichester uh, who worked for BA or some other airline, and he seriously is called Standstill. Still. You might have heard of the lady called Annette Curtin. <laughs> Terry Bull. And Anna Sassin. Some people have funny names, don't they? Um, Other names are funny, but they have meanings. Uh, In Korea, a popular name for a man is Bong, which apparently means mythical bird. Quite why you'd want to call your child a mythical bird, I don't know, but there we go. Uh, In Germany, it's Faber, which apparently means bean grower. I think it's slightly unfortunate if you are born and your parents sort of consigned you to a life of growing beans, and that's uh, all you're going to do. Faber and then my favourite one is a North American Indian name Yanatu, which means spring frog so there you go if you want a baby name you can try Yanatu. <laughs> well in the Old Testament names are hugely significant too uh, names reflected the, the nature and the character of a person so just have a, a think about this Abraham means father of many Moses deliverer and Ruth is a name derived from the word for friend. So each of these names say something of the nature and the character of the people. But you know it's the same with God. Let me read this to you. There's an amazing passage in Exodus chapter 3 where God reveals himself to Moses. Moses is about to go to Egypt where God's people are in slavery. And this is the dialogue that goes on. So now God says to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to send my, bring my people back, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation See, in the Old Testament, one of the biggest names for God that comes up, I think, 6,823 times is Yahweh. It's one of the names for God, and it's a name that means Lord. It's a name that speaks of the covenant name of God, the God who can do anything, who is with his people, who is faithful, who is the great deliverer. That is the name that God often has in the Old Testament. But the people of God, particularly the scribes, those who write the manuscripts, they held God in such and awe because he is the awesome God of all that when they came to writing his name, Yahweh, they took the vowels out because they didn't dare write his full name. That was the awe they held him in. So you see there the Y, the H, the W and the H, but the two vowels have been taken out. If you read anything on this, it's called this. Don't worry about it. It's called the Tetragrammaton. simply means four letters. The four letters that refer to the name of God. But they didn't dare write his name because of just how awesome God was. Well, it's that Lord who reveals himself as I am. In A few chapters later in Exodus, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. And in the book of Isaiah, where God again speaks through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I'll not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols You see, it's this Lord, the awesome creator of all things, the amazing covenant God, who calls himself, I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I was, I am, and I will be. It's the most amazing name that God gives to himself because it describes his nature and his character. Do you see now why when Jesus comes before this band of uh, soldiers and Judas and the religious leaders and he says, I am he, that they fall back. When you get the whole significance of all that name means in the Old Testament and Jesus then takes on the same name that God himself has, what is he saying? He's making a pretty massive claim. Jesus is claiming to be God. Think about how controversial those seven I am statements we've looked at in recent weeks now are. I am. Now I want to describe to you the difference uh, between truth and reality. Uh, last night I was with some of my friends and we had a boys' steak night watching the rugby. It was a fantastic evening. The steaks were so big that a photo wouldn't even fit on the screen. It was a great evening. Okay? Now let me give you some truths about how to cook a steak. Okay? Here are some truths. You have to have good quality meat. If you buy steak from a Sainsbury's or Tesco's, it'll be rubbish, it won't taste good, okay? Has to be good quality. You have to cook it in a proper steak pan, a griddle pan, nice cast iron heavy base so it can get really, really hot. You don't put oil in the pan, do you know that? If you put oil in the pan and you try and get the pan really, really hot, the oil smokes and then the steak burns. You put oil on the steak, not in the pan. Next tip, you cannot cook the steak straight from the fridge you have to let it come up to room temperature because if you go straight from cold to a boiling hot pan it tenses up, the meat gets really tough so you have to let it sit out for a while people don't know that last thing, you have to take the steak out early you have to put it on a hot place and let it rest and all the juices then get absorbed back in the steak we had last night, which by the way was ribeye and it was really, really quite good that's how you cook a steak now there are truths about how to cook a steak, okay? But it doesn't matter if they're true. There's a difference between truth and reality. The reality then is listening to the things that are true about how to cook a steak and cooking a steak that way and then enjoying it. The truth becomes a reality. The truth becomes personal. What I want to do in the last few moments is I want to take the truth of who Jesus is and that great claim he made when he says, I am. And I want us to help help us to see how that can become a reality. So it's not just a great information about the steak out there. But becomes something that is real to you and to me, okay? Four truths that I think will make a difference to you when you understand I am. Here we go. First one I am controls history. Do you notice in verse four? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? It's a bit of a strange question, isn't it? He knows who they are. He knows why they've come. He knows exactly what they want. So why did he ask them? Well, the reason is, is because he wanted to tee up the answer that he was soon to give. He knew that they were going to say, well, we want Jesus of Nazareth, which gives him the perfect opportunity to say, I am he. Do you notice how in verse 8 and in verse 12, Jesus puts up no fight. He says, I told you I'm he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. He's not looking for a fight. And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander, verse 12, and the Jewish officials arrest Jesus. They bind him, bound him and take him away. Jesus didn't put up a fight because he knew what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to be arrested. He was in complete and utter control. Then if you notice as well, there's some details in here. Look at verse 3. They come carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Why? Because it's night time and they think maybe Jesus and his disciples have run away and hiding. So they bring all these lanterns and torches so they can see him. Yes, it's Passover, full moon, they can see a bit, but they want to make sure they definitely can see him. And they come with weapons because they're expecting a fight. Jesus just says, I'm he. I don't want to fight you. I know you're going to arrest me. I'm in complete control. Do you notice as well, this all happened away from the city. It's Passover, there are thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. Well, Romans didn't want to arrest Jesus in a public place, create a riot and a big scene. Well, Jesus knows that. So he goes away to a quiet place knowing that they will come to find him in that quiet place and he's arrested there. Jesus didn't want people to fight for him because he came to lay down his life. You see, where this took place and how it took place is actually very, very significant and what it teaches us is that time is something that only God controls. God is in complete and utter control. I am controls history. Now that's a really important truth in an ultimate sense because it means that we trust God with the future, with eternity, and all that that means, we trust him through death. But I also just want to take us, that that truth that I am controls history can actually make a massive difference in our lives right now. I've had a number of conversations with people this week, a couple of teams in the church, a couple of individuals, A couple of observations I've made of other people and I've made of myself. Sometimes life can be really difficult. And the fact that I am controls history actually should give great comfort if you're struggling. I know many people are struggling with illness, yourself or of a loved one. I know that you're going through a lot of difficult things. I'm sure that Mother's Day for some is a particularly painful day. Maybe your life is just in a state of chaos at the moment, there's just so much going on, you haven't got any headspace, you can't think, you just feel like there's too much pressure. Maybe you're just struggling, and it just feels like a weight is crushing you. Take comfort that I am controls history, and if you know him, it's the covenant God who created everything, who is with you right now in the things you're finding difficult. Well, not only does I am control history, I am gives himself. Do you see verses 10 and 11? They come to arrest Jesus. Simon Peter, he's one of Jesus' closest friends. He has a sword, probably a short sword, hidden inside his tunic. What does he do, verse 10? He draws it and strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. He probably just lashed out trying to kill him. He's trying to defend the man he loves. But Jesus, verse 11, commands Peter... Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup there is a metaphor for his death. He says, Peter, we're not going to fight this one through because I know I'm going to the cross. I am going to give myself. Didn't we see it a few weeks ago in John chapter 10? Neil was unpacking, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, we looked at it last week, didn't he? We? I am the true vine. And Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Do you know this all took place at Passover? And historical records reckon that there could have been as many as a quarter of a million lambs killed at Passover. It's a Jewish festival that celebrates the delivery of God's people from Egypt. And people brought lambs and other offerings and they were slaughtered on this altar because the blood was spilt of an animal so that the blood does not have to be spilt of the person. It's like a substitute. Well, imagine a quarter of a million lambs being slaughtered and all the blood and it would run down the steep sides of Jerusalem down to the Kidron Valley where there's a brook and the brook is not full of water most of the time and in the rainy season it would rise up. Well, the blood flows through that brook. brook. It's not a mistake that John draws attention to this. Do you notice in verse 1, all this happened at Passover, and it says that Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley. It's not just a little detail, it's in that little valley where the blood would have been flowing at this time, and as Jesus crossed over that little bit of river, he himself would have been reminded that he is soon to go to his death, and his blood would be shed. I am not only controls history, but I am comes to give himself. Thirdly, I am rescues. Do you notice verse 8? You just get a little detail of this. Jesus answered, I told you I'm he, and if you're looking for me, then let these men go. He's saying, you've not come for my disciples, let them go, it's me who you want. In that little instance, he kind of rescues his disciples from an impending danger, battle, imprisonment, maybe death. But it's actually a picture of a much bigger rescue. Verse 9, Jesus is the great rescuer. This happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. See, Jesus came into the world to rescue us so that not a single person whom God is calling to himself would be lost. Prevents us from being cut off from God for all of eternity. But the amazing thing is, it's the name of God that rescues. Just have a look at the next, the previous chapter when Jesus was praying. Jesus says this, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me. So that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name that you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am controls history, I am came to give himself, I am came to rescue, and finally, I am divides I don't know if you notice another little detail in this passage. There's a stark contrast that John draws between Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus, and the disciples. Do you see in verse 2, how is Judas described to us? Judas, who betrayed him. We know Judas is the betrayer, but John puts that note in to remind us again. Judas, the betrayer. Have a look at verse 5. How is Judas described? Judas, the traitor. Well, we know he's the traitor, but again, John puts that in to remind us again of who he is. And if you don't know, remember what, what Judas is like, the context of this, if you flip back to John chapter 12, you don't need to, but I'll just read it to you. John chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. See, there's one picture, the Judas, who was prepared to give up everything, a relationship with this I am, for some money. Perhaps you're a person who is choosing to hold God at a distance because something or someone else in your life is more important to you than knowing him. Well, Judas is here to remind us and show us what we're like, if that is us. But notice, in contrast to Judas, you get the disciples. And the disciples are pretty worried. We've seen that in the previous chapters, haven't we? They're struggling. They don't want Jesus to go to the cross, but they're still with him at this point. They're still hanging on. They're still trying to trust, even in the mess of their life. And what did Jesus pray for them in chapter 17? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent the disciples are clinging on to the truth of that prayer. And perhaps that's you. Maybe you're struggling in your faith, but you're trusting. Cling on to that promise. This is eternal life, that they know you. If you know God, then you have hope. And so friends, as we move next week and the following weeks to this Easter series, it's this great I am, Jesus, who is God eternal, who goes to the cross who's betrayed, who's crucified and then rises again. But it's this great I am that you can know. And this Easter, there's nothing better than you can do than to bow the knee before him and to give your whole life to serve him. Because this passage teaches us that Jesus is God. And he's absolutely passionate about knowing you. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.